it changed something inside of me when I made the decision, this is it, we're doing this and we're going to do this. And it's that same mindset of like, we're getting through this in the best possible way. everybody. Welcome back to the Make It Inevitable podcast. I am your host, Stephanie Zamora, and today we have a very special guest as part of our expanded series, Casey Kang Head. She is a three-time survivor of acute lymphoblastic leukemia and a stroke survivor. And she's now a cancer coach that teaches survivors how to reclaim their life, and she's the author of Finding Your Way Back to Heart Center, Cancer Treatment Ended, Now What? Casey, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really grateful to be here with you today. Me too. Let's start with you sharing a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. So I am, uh, first and foremost, dog mom to Lily. (laughs) She's a seven-pound multiple, and she is uh, everything to me. And I am a cancer coach, so I really am empowering women to get through this journey during and after it in the best possible mental, physical, and emotional space that they can be. Yeah, that's beautiful. And you have quite a journey, as I was sharing with you before we hit record. I had found you in an article and then looked at your website and was just reading through your about page again. Your writing is beautiful. I encourage everyone, even though you're going to hear Casey share her story, go check out her website, read her story. Her words just flow so beautifully, and it just takes you on the journey with her. But let's talk about that. Let's go to the beginning of your story. You had a life. You had a job. You had a husband. Things were going a certain way. Tell us how that whole process of discovering that you had cancer unfolded. So I was uh, diagnosed uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2014. And you're right. I was in the midst of uh, a growing career. I had been married, uh, I think, a year or two at that point. And we were kind of just touching upon the conversation of like, do you want to have kids? And if you do, when do you want to have them? And we were in the midst of like, just getting all of our ducks in a row, right? And then this happened. And then it changed the trajectory of our lives forever. You know, I was diagnosed on February 14th, admitted to the hospital immediately. And what was supposed to be a doctor's appointment at lunch (laughs) turned into a 28-day hospital stay where they did the first phase of chemotherapy, which was an 18-month-old protocol. So then after that, I had to go approximately three to four times a week, whether it was for treatment of an appointment, um, blood or platelets that that were necessary to keep me going. Um, And... Four months into that, I had a stroke from the chemotherapy, um, which I had to relearn how to walk and use my entire left side because of it, while still undergoing chemotherapy because I wasn't in remission yet. And that was probably one of the very many darkest moments of my life, was sitting there with half a body that wasn't working, having to rely on my husband at 31 years old to help me do everything 
the most vulnerable things in your life. Help me go to the bathroom, bathe, tie my shoe. Like, talk about things that you never expected to be doing at that age, let alone maybe ever. Yeah. Um, so it it definitely bonded us in a way that I think we respect each other so much differently as as people because of that. And you know, having to rebuild my body at the same time while going through chemotherapy is extremely challenging and it pushes you to limits you didn't know you even even had inside of you. So fast forward, I finished my protocol. 18 months later, seven weeks later, I relapse. They tell me what most people would think is their nightmare. And, you know, right when I was about to go live life again, got taken away. And I found out at work and immediately was hospitalized again. And we tried an immunotherapy that didn't work. So they ended up putting me on a clinical trial because my body was no longer responding to chemotherapy. So we did all the testing leading up to this clinical trial. And a week before I was supposed to go on it, it was shut down. And so we were like, what's next? And I say we a lot in this because it truly was my husband and I against, like, it felt like we were against the world, right? Like we were in this together. It's all right. Um, and they were like, oh, we don't, there's another clinical trial, but we can't guarantee that you're number one going to get on it. And number two, it's full. So there's a wait list. And with clinical trials, there's no line skipping. So I was like, this, so what's the plan in the meantime, right? Like, there's got to be something. There's got to be a backup plan. They're like, we don't really have one. Uh, we're just going to keep you alive with blood and platelets. And I was like, this sounds like a terrible plan. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't know. So you're like, okay. Yeah. Um, and at that point, uh, I think it was in the hospital over 60 days. And I was like, I need to go home. Like I'm going stir crazy in the box. And oh, right when, you know, we were trying to convince the, the, the hospital and the team to let me out of the hospital, um, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, their annual conference, doctor's conference just finished up. Well, one of the doctors at my hospital, it, just by some happenstance, presented a paper that was two pages long for an immunotherapy that was not for my cancer. And they brought it to us and said, do you want to try this? And I, we had the the research, the outcomes were not great for people who had what I had. There were 11 participants and the outcomes were not good. And I looked at my husband and I thought about it. We took a couple days and I said, you know what, even if this doesn't help me, let's do it. I go, I don't know what's going to happen. I go, but I'm willing to try it. Yeah. I don't really have a lot of other options. So they allowed me to leave the hospital. And in the meantime, we wrote a letter of compassion to the FDA. 
and the drug manufacturer to even get access to this drug. And after about two and a half months of waiting, it was approved. And so we started with four rounds. After four rounds of this immunotherapy, Isotunumab, it's a, it, it got me into remission. And they were like, okay, now we have to get you to a stem cell transplant. And my brother is my donor. He was 100% match. So they knew like this was the path forward. So back into the hospital, I went, had a stem cell transplant. And six months later, relapsed again. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. I'm like, and in that moment that they told me, because they caught it so early, and I was still going back for regular appointments uh, once a week, that I genuinely looked at my husband and I said, I can't do it. I don't have it in me. I, go, I didn't have any gas left in the tank. And I said, I just can't do it. And I started crying and I put my head down. I don't even know how long I was crying, but the, the thought, popped into my head of your dad would be so disappointed in you. You just gave up. All these people got you to where you're at and you're just going to give up. And I just like, Oh, and I thought and I sat and I, I literally in my head made a deal with the universe. And I said, I'm doing this one last time, but that's it. I'm done. Like we're not, we're not doing this anymore. I go, but this isn't even for me. This is for my dad. This is for my husband. This is for everyone that got me to where I'm at here now. But I'm definitely not doing this again. And it's not for me. And we were like, okay. I looked up back up. My husband, I said, this is it. One last time. I know I don't have anything else. And he goes, okay. He's like, are you sure? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I'm in this moment. Let's just go. Let's just. I can do this. And so we asked, I said another stem cell transplant or an immunotherapy. And we ended up doing an immunotherapy, the same one, isotunumab, another four rounds and got me to remission. And then we were like, okay, are we doing another stem cell transplant? They're like, no, we're just going to wait. I'm like, wait a minute, time out. What do you, what do you mean? We're just going to wait. We're just going to see what happens. And I was like, how long are we going to wait? Right? And they're like, we don't know yet. We're just going to wait. So for about six months straight, I was going back to the hospital every week. And every time I saw my oncologist, she would say, she'd grab my shoulder and she'd go, babe, girl, we're just lucky you're alive. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> I'm like, this is how I'm supposed to live my life. With like, not really knowing I'm going to stay alive. Like, and which just like fueled the fear and the anxiety even more that I was feeling already. And I was like, oh man, I can't live like this. I'm like, I'm just terrified that I'm waiting to get enough more bad news. I'm going to relapse again. And I was like, how long? I was like, do you think I can go live life? And they're like, yeah, go for it. I was like, are you sure? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay that's fantastic. I'm like, how do you do that? They're like, we don't know. Mm. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, these were like literal conversations that I was having with them. And they're like, we don't know. But they're like, we, we think you can go back to living life. And I was like, oh, oh my goodness. Sure? Like, 
it sounds crazy to even say it out loud. Um, this, this, that's what they said. <laughs> I mean, that's my sh- the short story of my journey. Yeah, no, and that's such a great recap. And again, I cannot stress enough how, how beautiful of a writer you are as well as a speaker. And we'll fill in some of these gaps because there were certainly things that stood out to me reading your story again that I want to touch on. But, but please, again, visit Casey's site and we'll link to that and share all of that. I mean, I want to go back to the beginning because something that really stood out to me in your story is how all of this just unfolded. If I remember, you had like a bump in your neck and you got some treatment for it that what they thought might help you with it. And that made you sicker. And then you went back in and you were sent over to a specialist and then to the ER. And it was like just this series of things that were just unfolding. And And even once they figured out that it was cancer, you talked about how you, it didn't really hit you. Not until, you know, you lost a big clump of hair. And I would love if you could kind of speak to that. I think there's different reasons that that happens for us. That can be shock, that can be denial or dissociation, or just things are moving so quickly that you can't process it. And I'd just be curious what that was like for you And what helped you, if anything, kind of stay upright, even through that first whirlwind of like, boom, boom, this, that, let's go here, there. What was that like? I honestly, Stephanie, think it was a combination of all of those things at once. You know, I genuinely didn't think it would, was anything related to something as serious as cancer. I thought I was anemic. <laughs> like, I genuinely was like, oh, I just need, like, iron pills, and I'll be fine. Like, I went to my doctor's appointment at lunch thinking I was going back to work that day. Yeah. Because to back up, like, I they, I had seen a ear, nose, and throat doctor because I was experiencing some lumps, and I was, like, on my neck, and I was like, I want to get ahead of this because if this is strep throat, like, I'm definitely, I don't want to get sick. <laughs> so I went and he goes, huh, that's weird. Feels my neck. He goes, we'll just give you 10 days of antibiotics and we'll follow up in two weeks. Well, from the Monday that I stopped the antibiotics to the Friday that I went back to see the ENT, everything just exploded inside of my body. Like I was starting to see fissures, which are like these ocular distortions in your eye. Um, I was looking like pale as a ghost. I was starting to bruise everywhere. Like I'd bump my arm. There'd be a giant bruise. Like I'm talking purple and deep and all of these things. Like I was night sweating, like through shirts in within a matter of weeks, which is why it's acute. And still did not correlate (laughs) what I was going through to anything related to cancer. And so when they told me that it, it potentially could be that in the ER, and they were like 99.9% sure. <laughs> like, like they started chemotherapy with before even getting the bone marrow biopsy results back because they were so sure. Um, but I, I couldn't say the word. I, when they first handed my husband the pieces of paper, of what it was, I said, what is it? What is it? Like nagging him. And he was, hold on to reading. And then he told me what the paper said. 
And he goes, they think it's cancer. And I was like, what? Mm. But he, he goes, but they think it's children's cancer. So my brain just locked onto this word children's. And the doctor comes back in that's in the ER. And he goes, we're going to transport you down to the hospital to admit you, to get you, you know, the help you need because we can't do that here. And I said, great. I said, am I going to the hospital? the adult hospital or the children's hospital because all I knew was like children like am I getting treated like as such because I'm not like 90 years old because that's all I know about cancer is like you're either 90 or you're you know there's I don't know young people with with cancer and he was looked at me it's funny like I like I bought my head he goes you're going to the adult hospital and I go okay good (laughs) because my husband can't be within 50 feet of children I know I said it and <laughs> and he looked at me as if like I said I like like couldn't believe it. He just turned around and walked out. My husband goes, Oh my god, what's wrong with you? And I was like, I don't know a lot. Like what do you say and what do you do when somebody says that to you? <laughs> so then I go to the ER and I still couldn't say the word. And in my brain, I'm like, this isn't happening. They're wrong. You're negotiating inside of your head. And I just kept calling my dad and he's a high school basketball coach. I couldn't get a hold of him because it's Friday night. He's coaching. I finally get a hold of him. I go, you just need to come to the ER. I didn't tell him why. And so he comes to the ER. It's like one in the morning at this point. And I go, I looked at my husband, I can't tell him. I can't say it. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, I go, you need to tell him. He goes, you want me to tell him? I go, yeah, I can't say it. I can't do it. I can't do it. So I, so before my dad even comes into the ER room or like the behind the curtain, I hear my husband and my muffled voices with my dad because I couldn't say it. I couldn't say the word for about a year, genuinely. I kept, I, I would say I'm sick or I, I, I'm not feeling good, but I, I couldn't say the word. I couldn't say the word cancer. And the reality of what I had just found out didn't hit me until my hair started to fall out. Because logically, I, I knew they were telling me it was going to happen. It was just a matter of when. Right. So I was like, oh, okay. Right? Like, we're like, oh, okay, I'm going to lose my hair. Not a big deal. And then it happened in the shower, and giant clumps were in my hands. And I was like, I'm actually going through this. Like, holy cow. I'm going through this. And I cried in the shower. My husband knocked on the door and was like, are you okay? I was like, I don't know if I'm okay. I don't think so, but I am. Like, I'm not, like, I didn't fall. I'm not, like, I'm okay in that sense, but I'm not okay. Oh, my gosh. I, you know, it's funny that you mentioned anemia. I, I hemorrhaged earlier this year, and I had a pretty bad, severe-ish case of iron deficiency anemia that I'm still healing from and pales in comparison to what you've gone through, which is not to invalidate my experience or anyone else who's having a different one. But I I know 
from that health blip of mine that I'm still coming out of that doing anything when you're tired and you're unwell and you're having treatments that are helping you but making you feel worse, for me, there was so much that felt impossible or at the very least, like incredibly challenging. Like, I don't know if I can do this today. I don't know if I can get out of bed today. And some days I wouldn't get out of bed. And some days the depression from the anemia was so intense that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't function. And, and it helped me, at least in my experience to know, I'm, I just don't have enough iron. (laughs) Like there's, there's nothing wrong with my life. I just don't have enough iron. And that started to help me find traction. But I would really love if you could share you're sick and you're getting sicker from your treatments and there's not a lot of answers and you had the the stroke and the seizures and then you had to do PT from that. And that's only in your first round of dealing with the cancer. Like what were some of the most difficult moments of that mentally and was there anything or anyone that really helped you through that? I would say the the start was the most difficult because you you are at your worst physically, at least I was at that point. Um, and because my husband and my dad know how I operate so well, um, they were like, we need to get you up and out of bed because at that point I was in bed for three days straight in the hospital like because I was so sick and I was so like even getting up to go to the bathroom was a struggle. And they were like, we need to get you out of bed. You need to be walking around. You need to be like participating basically. And so that helped me wake up to the point of going in my head. As soon as I was like, oh, I need to be doing these things so I can get out of this hospital room. Okay. That changed it for me in perspective because I was like, if I want to go home, I have to get to a point where I can walk up and down stairs by myself. I have to be able to navigate like walking around a house. So I knew that was the goal. And as soon as I had a goal, it helped turn things on in my brain. Because once I knew the goal, it helped me also larger in, in a larger scale of like my medical team is doing everything that I can, they can to help kill cancer inside of my body with the medicine and, 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 and everything that they're giving me this is everything that they're doing. How can I participate in that? Right? Like how can I also do everything to be a good team player to help them do their job well? And so that's what really started that mental journey of like, we get up every day, we shower, we eat, we walk, we do the things that suck in the moment, mm-hmm. but know they're going to benefit you later. Yes. And it's, God, it's hard to do that sometimes. And I love that you brought up having the goal. We, inside the methodology that we teach within this conversation, like desire is the first piece. You have to want what it is that you want, or you're not going to go through the hard parts of it. It's like, it has to, the desire has to be strong enough to pull you through that. And I, I love that there was two sides of that for you. There was I don't want to be in here anymore. You know, I want to be able to live my life. I want to be able to walk around my house, but also this is a team effort. And what's the part that I can do? 
And I know for me, like throughout my life when I've had hard times, whether it's mentally or physically, oh God, it's really, really hard. (laughs) Even when you really want the thing to pull yourself through that. And it sounds like you have such an incredible husband and such an incredible father. And we're fortunate to have a great team of doctors and, and, you know, maybe there was hard moments with them at different times. And actually, I just want to say, I laughed really hard. I'm a Grey's Anatomy fan. So reading your about page where you were like, every day there are these beautiful, smart people in my room, 10 of them. Oh my God. God. It was, and it's so, cause I'm like, I smell (laughs) and like things are happening to my body that I can't control. And like, like I was just like kind of freaking out like a little bit, especially the first time, because I'm like, and why do they have to be so attractive? <laughs> you know, like they're so smart and attractive. And I'm like, what is happening? I smell and I haven't showered in three days. And now I'm putting a stethoscope and you're really close. And I know I don't smell good. <laughs> so vulnerable because you're just like, okay, touch me. Yeah. And there's such a deep amount of surrender that's required, I feel. When you're trying to make anything big happen, and especially when in order to do that, you you need to partner with other people, or you need to partner with life, or you need to, like, there's this surrender. And going back to what you said about your husband, I, I don't know, how long were you guys together before you were married? Uh, we were together three years, and I think at that time we were married about two. Okay, yeah. I mean, so you had a little bit of time together, but like you said, you weren't planning on needing him to help you go to the bathroom or shower until maybe later in life. And that gave me goosebumps when you shared that, because when I was at my low with like the severity of iron deficiency and anemia, I I couldn't bathe myself. Like I was too weak. I was too dizzy. My heart rate would shoot up. And my partner, who I have not been with that long, it was like we were long distance at the time. It was the third time that we were together and I had hemorrhaged on the way to see him. Like it was this whole thing and he bathed me and it was deeply uncomfortable and so loving and sweet. And like you said, like it, it built a deeper bond that neither one of us expected to have to, to deal with, but there is that piece of surrender. And I think people confuse surrender with like giving up. And surrender is like softening into this is what is happening and softening into the care of others. And I'm curious if before all of this, were you good at that? Were you good at asking for and receiving support? Or were you like strong, independent woman, which was me? <laughs> and and what was that process like for you? I was exactly like that. I didn't ask for help for anything from anyone. Mm-mm, no way. <laughs> I'm going to figure it out on my own, even if it's took me twice as long and it was twice as hard. I, that was my mentality. And it, because of those moments throughout the journey, it humbled me to a point where I didn't think I would ever be. And the level of vulnerability to not just have to, have to ask for help, but receive help. And not because I needed it, but because I genuinely wanted it. Even when I could have, yeah, there were certain points where I could have done a lot of the things on my own, but instead my ego, I put it aside and I asked for the help. 
I learned that gritting through certain things wasn't necessary. Yeah, so true. And until you allow yourself to experience otherwise, like you, you don't really know that in your nervous system. And it's it was so foreign to me. And that's why the, when I had my stroke and he put a sock on me and I was like, this is the strangest experience, let alone a sports bra on me, <laughs> let alone a shirt, let alone just even seeing me as vulnerable as I was. That's so was difficult. just something, yeah, that you don't expect until you're maybe 90 years old-ish. Mm. At least that's what I thought in my mind. And it does give you also this level of trust in each other that I don't think we would have ever had if we didn't go through this. I trusted him before, but like it, it, it becomes very different afterward, as you know. Like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's different. There's uncertainty throughout most all of it, it sounds like. And uncertainty if you were going to get better. And even once you're in remission, uncertainty that you were going to stay in remission the first two times, but even the last time when they're like, we don't know. Sure, go live your life. And even after the stroke and having to relearn to do all these things yourself, what was it like for you to be in that level of constant, this is my word, but I would guess terrifying to some degree, uncertainty of what's going to happen? Am I going to live? Is this going to work? Is this going to get better? Like, What were those thoughts for you and what really helped you? just keep some level of center throughout it. It was really difficult to live with so much ambiguity and so much unknown and so much fear because it was really like, it felt like a cloud looming over my head and it was waiting to rain at any moment. And I never lost hope that there would be something. It was this weird feeling deep inside of me that like, even though when we wrote a letter of compassion to the FDA and the drug manufacturer and I was sent home to settle my affairs and I had really hard conversations with my dad that I never thought I'd have, I finished, uh, I think I had my will at that point, but we updated it, all these things. And I was talking openly about like how I wanted my funeral to go. And he go, my husband literally goes, stop controlling everything. He's like, I'm going to do what I want to do. You're not going to be here. <laughs> and I said, okay, I get it. Um, I, I never lost hope that there would be something. And I don't know what, where that came from, but it was like a deep knowing of like, this isn't it. It's going to get better. And maybe there was some level of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Nativity? I don't know. Like, um, just like where you do kind of want to stick your head in the sand, like an ostrich. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, uh, to it. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't lose hope that the drug would be approved, that it would work, that it would, the stem cell would work. And like, I just never lost faith and trust that I would get through it. 
it was the weirdest thing because I remember that at Christmas experiencing it going, this might be my last Christmas. This is really weird. But not thinking like, oh, wow, you're going to die. Like, so this in. Like, this is really weird. God, I can't imagine that level of duality. It's a strange world to be in. It is a strange feeling because you really do feel like you're watching a movie. Mm. And everyone kept saying, like, is there anything you want to do? Like, like a bucket list. And I was like, no, I go, I want to be with my friends. I want to be with my family. Like that's what I did. And that's what I wanted to do because although would it have been a great experience to go do something? Probably, but I didn't want that. Like I didn't see how having one last great moment would make a difference to me. It was like genuinely being with my people. That makes a lot of sense. That gave me goosebumps. And the duality piece, I've, I have I know myself and a lot of other people, we've had different experiences of that. And I it feels like that came into play later when you had to make that decision to do it one more time. You know, because like you said, you, you never lost hope. And yet there was what sounds like doubt. Like I don't. I don't know if I can do this again. Like I don't have it in me. And even like an acknowledgement of like, I'm, I'm at my bottom. <laughs> and I know there were other very deep bottoms along the way, but like, I'm, I'm empty. I'm on empty. And decision is something that we talk a lot about in this work because decision is like a frequency. It's a different energy in us. It's a different way of carrying ourselves. And that sounds like such a pivotal moment of deciding, okay, I'm going to do this. And even like you said earlier, your husband was like, are you sure? And you're like, just, let's just do this. Like I, you had decided, like I am now in the energy of like, let's go. And how did that feel to you? Like, did you feel anything different energetically, either physically or just inside yourself? Did it help at all with the doubt or the mindset pieces? Or was it just like, okay. And you kind of went through it again. It changed something inside of me when I made the decision, like, this is it. We're doing this and we're going to do this. And it's that same mindset of like, we're getting through this in the best possible way. You know what you can do. So let's go. Like there was a reality, but also like then the next level of like, put your big girl pants on and do the thing. <laughs> in the voice inside my head. Like, you know what you have to do to get through this. Just do it. And that's like, once that kicked in, once that voice was like, put your big girl pants on, like, it was like, okay, let's go. I game face back on, let's do this. And it changed the, the mindset of like, we got to do this. We're doing this. Let's go. <laughs> and that's like that true shift of, of having that decision changed everything. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And and something that I love so much about your work and what you speak to is that, and it's right there in the title of your book, like finding your way back to heart center, cancer treatment ended. Now what? That like, now what question that you had to ask yourself. And especially after going into remission for the third time and having that ambiguity, having that uncertainty of, well, they don't know <laughs> what we're doing. Am I supposed to just go live my life. And you said on your website, 
that you even Googled that, like something to that effect of like cancer treatment has ended. Now what? I'm in remission. Now what? And there was nothing for you. And I so love that you spoke to that isolating feeling of, well, something wrong with me that I can't figure it out because no one else is talking about it. And that's why I think you sharing your story, people sharing their story, podcasts, videos, blogs, all the things that we do, books where we share our stories are so important because it helps people realize they are not alone. And it can be so scary to share our own stories that we've gone through, but it it helps other people not feel alone. So you've taken that and you've built a whole career and body of work around that. You wrote a book about it and you're helping women. I would love to hear that process of, they were like, we don't know, let's see what happens. And you're like, should I go live my life? And what was the whole process of going from that question to actually stepping into the work that you do now? You know, I lived in that unknown for a long time and it, and I, I felt very stuck because I'm not the woman I was, but I'm not the one. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what this life was about to give me again. And for so long living like that. And I remember my therapist at the time asked me a question that woke me up, to be honest. And she looked at me and she goes, what if it never comes back? And I go, oh, I sat there. I go, I don't know. And I went home with that question though. And it stewed inside my brain. And I was like, I came back the next week and I go, I'd be wasting time. Mm. And she goes, so what are you going to do? I go, (laughs) (laughs) like, I'm like, oh my God, that's what I needed to hear. Right. Like, and so from that, I formulated my plan of like, how do I get rid of living in this paralyzing fear that's making me feel stuck? How do I stop living so anxious and afraid? And how, who am I? And like, so I just like dove into every self-help book you could get. I studied the brain because I was like, how do I stop feeling so scared? You know, what did all of this trauma really do to me? All of these things and like courses and research and interview people. And I mean, I dove in. <laughs> and then I, I, because I thought I was alone feeling the way that I had felt, you know, I felt broken and like I was the only one that struggled to find the path forward. But little did I know that like no one talked about it. That's, that was the bigger issue. So then, okay, well, I, I started talking about how like on Instagram, how I rebuilt my body. Cause that was like, a big deal for me was like physically getting enough energy just to make it through the day without napping. Right. <laughs> and then women were like, Oh, how do you do that? And so I sure to share that. But then like, I was like, Oh, there's something here. Well, I can give you everything that I did. So I started giving them that. And then they're like, well, do you experience this and that? And I'm like, Oh, I'm not the only one. Okay. So then I started to share more of the vulnerable pieces of like, I'm terrified all the time. Like, yeah. is anyone else? Like all those things that we we weren't talking about because although I was very grateful to be alive, like I didn't feel grateful. Yeah. I felt really broken as a human and disconnected from who I I was and I am. 
And so the more I shared about those pieces and parts, the more I realized like, oh, everyone else is kind of struggling with something similar. So then it became even bigger than me. And that's when, that's when I literally it felt like a download from the universe wrote the book. And I was like, this is everything that I did. And it, it, I couldn't type fast enough at times, mm. like truly. And that's how I knew this is like, this is what I was supposed to be writing. And it's not everything, but it's the majority of like what I, the questions I asked myself, what I did to, for lack of a better word, unstuck myself, <laughs> unstick myself to move forward. And and now I, I love what I do. It's evolved into coaching other women and, you know, continuing my own path and my own journey. Uh, I moved cross country and, you know, living life and all of those things as a result of it. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And such, again, such important work. I wrote my memoir about trauma and loss and abuse. And it was the same thing. Like it just had to get out of me. And there was so much that I I didn't want to put in there (laughs) because I was like, people are going to read this and they're going to know that this happened. And that's what I did. And that's how I felt. And all the stupid decisions that were the right decisions, like the stupid decisions that were the right decisions for me and my healing. And so I, I so appreciate that you're doing this and that you're so willing to share your story. And I want to get more into your business and where people can find you and work with you. But but first, I would love to go deeper into how, how do you feel today and how do you live with and manage the uncertainty and the questions and any fear that comes up and and continue to stay plugged into and invested in your life? Um, I, I, I'm doing great. I am healthy. I am happy. Um, I genuinely don't live in fear. Mm. Um, I have gotten myself to a mindset of like, if it comes back, you know exactly what to do and it's going to be fine because you're mentally, physically, and emotionally actually in a better place than you were when you were 31. And you know, if you got through it and did all of that through it, you can pretty much handle it. And so like, that's the mindset that I'm in because I know the reality of what I went through only puts me more risk for, for another cancer to appear in my life. So I consciously make decisions to ensure that physically, mentally, and emotionally, I am always at my best and not always at my best, but I try my best to make it to be at my best. And that's what matters. Like life will happen and there will be lulls and times that we slip up with things, but it sounds like you hold that intention of, and again, this, this feels like such a parallel to early on when you realize like you and your doctors were a team and you kind of needed to pull your weight as best you could. And what did that mean? And this this sounds very similar, like, but a, a bigger agreement with self of like, I'm going to do the best that I can do. And I'm going to trust myself and trust others and trust life and trust that whatever happens, I'll find my way through it. Exactly. It, you couldn't, I couldn't have said it better. And I just put my myself in that position to, 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 to be there. <laughs> 
Well, I am loving talking to you, but I can't keep you here all day. So let's let's talk more about the type of women that you work with, the work that you do with them, how they can find you, how they can get your book. And again, we're going to link to all of that in the show notes, but please share all the places and all the things. So I am on Instagram and Facebook um, at The Happier Hustle. Um, it is, uh, I work with women, any types of cancer. I've worked with brain to breast to ovarian to you name it. Um, so there, I don't, I don't think there's a cancer I haven't worked with at this point, actually, to be honest. Um, but it's all things related to cancer, whether you're through, going through the journey, um, or you are done with the journey and struggling with survivorship. It's physical, mental, and emotional recovery and repair and healing. Mm. Beautiful. Again, we're going to link to everything in the show notes. And one final question just to wrap things up. For anyone who's going through anything that feels impossible to them, circumstantially, resource-wise, maybe they don't have the education level, and maybe they're going through something health-related that's really hindering their ability to like get up and do the things that they need to do, what is a piece of advice that you would give them? It's one day at a time and ask yourself every morning, what can I do? Even if that means getting up, showering, putting on clean clothes, that in and of itself, not sitting in bed all day, can make the world of a difference. Beautiful. Casey, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story and for all the work that you're doing. Thank you for having me. 